perhaps you're a little bit worried, uh, we're not actually going to be reading all of it all at once. In fact, our focus this week, seeing as we're looking at grace, is going to be on Genesis chapter 3. But in order for us to get to Genesis chapter 3, there's some of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that we have to understand as well. Uh, If you just give me one second. Here we go. And we got it. Okay. Genesis starts with the creation account. It's a good thing I always have an electronic copy of everything available. This morning we are looking at grace. Last week Jim Dawson came and talked to us about grace and he spoke to us from Second Peter and, and the words that struck me last week is that we are God's peculiar people. That's true in many ways. We are peculiar, but we are peculiar in terms of God has specially chosen us. We are his um, most treasured possession. We're the apple of God's eye. And grace is God's decision to give us himself. Because he loves us, because he's kind to us. It's, It's not because we deserve it, it's just because he does. And the most obvious example of grace is God choosing to adopt us as his son and his daughter. So God... In mercy, forgave our sins. He he gave us, well, he didn't give us what we deserve. And in grace, he then turns around and says, I'm not going to just show you mercy. I'm actually going to make you part of my family. But we mustn't think that grace is something that just arrives in the New Testament. Now, sometimes we've got this idea of of there almost being two different gods in the Bible. You've got the the angry Old Testament God, and you've got the, you know, the nice, graceful God of the New Testament. But I want to suggest to to you this morning that, that actually grace is characteristic of how God deals with us, and, and it's been characteristic of how God has dealt with us for as long as time has been. Even at our very worst, God is gracious to us. And as I said, we're looking at Genesis chapter 3, which is the genesis of one of the worst moments in human history. But before we get to Genesis 3, we have to see that, that grace is also not just defined in terms of God's reacting to us being bad. Grace isn't just given to people who are bad, grace is grace because God freely gives it. And in fact, there's grace right in the very first chapter of Genesis. And Genesis is a beautiful story telling us an account of, of who made everything. And the whole point of, of Genesis is to introduce us to God. If you look at the other world, uh, nations, uh, in the ancient Near East, around the time when, when Genesis was being written, they all had their stories of their gods taking up residence in the universe. But when you come to our God, when you come to Genesis, we, we're told that, that he is the one who made 
the universe. He doesn't just move in like a squatter. He's the one that makes it. And we know that our universe um, had a start. Uh, We can see, amazingly, it's incredible how the science, you can see right back until almost instantaneously after the universe started. It's, It's amazing, wonderful stuff. I mean, the Big Bang is incredible, but, but try as we might, the best telescopes we have, the best radio telescopes cannot tell us why. Why? Why? Why is there something rather than nothing? And the Bible gives us the answer. Quite frankly, there's something rather than nothing because God decided there should be. God said, I'm going to make. And the universe doesn't deserve to exist. There is no moral requirement that there be a universe. Stuff doesn't have to be. It's only there because God chose for it to be, and that, that's grace. In the beginning, chapter 1 of Genesis, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and in the very first book, in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, in the very first sentence, grace. We don't deserve to exist. Nothing deserves to exist, but God chose to give it to us. God chose to create. What's a free gift. And, and as you read through Genesis 1, we're not going to do that now, but you read through it and there's a, 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 a description of a systematic creating by God, of, of bringing order to this world that he made. And every now and again, kind of at the end of every age, God looks at it and says, Good. That's good. But have you ever asked yourself, Why? that pesky question again. Why does God look at what he makes and say, says, no, say, that's good. For example, what is it about the light? What is it about, uh, let's, chapter 1 verse 14, let's read that. Let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark seasons, days, and years. Let these lights shine in the sky that these lights in the sky shine down on the earth, and that is what happened. God made two great lights, the larger one to govern the day, the smaller one to govern the night. He also made the stars, and God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. But why was it good? Because God is good, but why is that good? What makes light gooder than no light? You can see. And I'm sure God was pretty pleased because up until then he couldn't see. Hang on. Why was it good? He was doing his will. But there's more to it. God 
doesn't need a signpost. Sorry, was somebody saying something? Fran. He needed the light for the growth of the plants, but why does he look at the plants and say they're good? Exactly. God doesn't need signposts. God doesn't need things to separate day from night. If God says this is day, this is night, God can do it without stars in the sky. And God makes everything, and then he comes to making the animals, and the very last animal is a weird mongrel creature, as C.S. Lewis puts it. Half animal, half spiritual. Humanity. And God looks at us, and he says, very good. Very good. You know, everything that God made is according to his will, but it just so happens to be perfectly suited for us. Isn't that amazing? Do you know how blessed we are to be living on this planet? You you watch the news and they they tell us that they found a planet in the Goldilocks zone 100,000 light years away. And we all get excited because there might be liquid water there. Do you know that there are actually something like 15 different Goldilocks conditions that have to be met? And they, they get excited when one out of 15... What's one? Who's the teacher? Taryn? One out of 15. What percentage is that? That's one, one fifteenth. That's very good. <laughs> what, what? It's two out of 30 which is 6 out of 90, so let's say it's 7%. 7% is a failing grade, and I fail my maths as well. 7%, and the whole community gets excited. God made us this planet that is 100% suited to us. And he looks at us and he says, that is very good. And then he, he doesn't just look at us and say, very good. He doesn't just grace us with a world that's suited to us. But he then entrusts us with with it and says, you guys are to take care of it. And and that's grace. Gives us a purpose and and a meaning. He says, I want you to extend this garden that I've made here throughout this world. And I want you basically to, to tune the song of creation to sing my glory and praise. And that's grace. And throughout all of creation, there's just one rule that God says, and he says, one rule to not, and God says, just don't eat from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know the story. The snake, has God really said, don't eat from that tree? Eve, the woman, not called Eve yet, by the way, just the woman, looks at the tree and says, oh, that does look good, and oh, I do want to be wise like God. So she takes it and she eats and she gives it to Adam, and he eats. The one thing they were told not to do, and with that choice, the poison of sin infects creation. And we're told that as soon as Adam and Eve eat, they realize that they are naked. In fact, let's read uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses um, 7. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. 
And when the cool evening breeze were blowing in the garden, uh, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid because I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. (laughs) And then the Lord asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you eat, you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat, until you return to the ground from which you came. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. And then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. And then the Lord God said, Look, the humans have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? They will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. In that moment, Adam and Eve ate the, tree, uh, the fruit of the tree they were told not to eat. Those horrible three scars that still ensnare, ensnare us started to burn. Guilt, shame, and fear. Never before had Adam and Eve gone to sleep wondering whether God would wipe them out. Whether God would be angry with them. And now, as Paul says in Romans 3, we all fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. You know, sometimes we have this picture of God as angry and mad at us and almost vindictive out to get us because of the wrong things that we've done. But the interesting thing is that when we get to Genesis 3, at the very start where it all goes wrong, we don't find God rushing out to wipe out the guilty pair. God's approach to them is much more like much more like a loving parent than it is like an angry headmaster. They're hiding for God, from God and God makes the move. They, they don't deserve for God to treat them with such loving kindness and yet God does. 
Well, that's mercy and grace. Now, grace doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for our actions. But even in the consequences, we see something of God's grace. You know, the interesting thing is that that God actually doesn't curse Adam and Eve. They're the ones that have done the wrong thing, but they are not cursed by God. They're still blessed by God. He curses the snake and he curses the ground and there are consequences of those curses for the, the man and the woman, but they themselves are not cursed. And so God looks at the, the snake and he curses him, Satan's representative there. Cursed into a role of groveling and enmity. And, and there are consequences of that curse. And, and God says in verse 15, I'm going to make this enmity between your offspring and, and the woman's offspring and you will strike his heel and, and, and he will strike your head. Now, perhaps you guys have heard from my very lips even that this is a hint at the coming of Jesus. But I, I've actually been convinced that I've been wrong in thinking that way. That is actually an interpretation. It's got a long history. It goes back to the second century uh, to a church father called Irenaeus who who said, here we hear about the striking of Satan's head and Jesus' victory over him. And yes, Jesus does have the victory, but, but actually this verse has got nothing to do with that. Well, only tangentially to do with that. Uh, and the reason I say that is because nowhere in the Old Testament is this linked to God saving us. And in fact, nowhere in the New Testament is Genesis 3.15 linked to God saving us. The only time it's mentioned in, uh, the Bible, uh, in the Bible directly is Romans chapter 16, verse 23, where Paul says, God will soon crush the head of Satan under your feet, you church in Rome. So it's not about Jesus striking down Satan. I think what we have here is we have God looking at this emissary of evil and saying, I will cause there to be this to and fro of fighting between your offspring and her offspring. Constantly there will be a war between evil and humanity. You will constantly be trying to destroy people. And if you were here at Christmas, we saw that. This is the Christmas dragon who tries to destroy God's people, tries to destroy Jesus, and when he can't, he just tries to destroy God's people and destroy and destroy. But it's broader than that because all of humanity is in a struggle against the evil that now resides in this world and resides in us. And, and to strike at a heel from a snake is a potentially deadly blow. And to crush a snake's head is a potentially deadly blow. This is, this is a no-gain fight. Almost mutually assured destruction. This is a continual unresolved conflict between humanity and evil. God didn't curse us in that, but the consequences of our choice are huge. Paul says, what a miserable man I am because I know the right thing to do and I don't do it. I do what I don't want to do and what I do want to do I don't do. And this is the fight. 
And God looks at Eve in verse 16. Oh, sorry, he looks at the woman in verse 16. And, and he doesn't curse her. But he does speak about increasing her pain in childbirth. I mean, why pain? I suspect there's pain because death is in the picture all of a sudden. And the consequence, the other consequence of her rebellion is this breakdown in her relationship with Adam, with the man. They're not equals anymore. Men and women were made to be equals. And I find it very interesting. It is after this, after the fall, that Adam names his wife. Up until this point, she's just been the woman. But now, he names her. And to name something or someone is to take control over them. See, both of them are now trying to be like God. They're trying to be in control. And, and she's dependent on Adam. She wants to have children. So Adam says, right, I'm in charge. I name you Mother. I name you Eve, living. Which is just an aside, how interesting that we were never meant to not be equals. That's a result of our brokenness, that we are not equal. And again, God doesn't curse Adam, but he curses the ground, and there's thorns and thistles and, and a hard life, for Adam as a result. They had chosen to reject God, and so they would die. You know, before the fall, Adam and Eve had no question of surviving. Um, I'm pretty convinced that there was death prior to the fall. But for Adam and Eve, it was a non-issue because they had access to the tree of life. They had the antidote. And then they chose to rebel against God and God said, uh-uh. You ate of that tree, you will die. You chose to rebel against me. The, the consequences are death. They had to leave the garden. They had to be away from God, away from life. I wonder, what do you think the expression was on God's face as he spoke to them, having found them? As he pronounced the curses, as he described the consequences of their choices? I mean, it, it could have had a bit of anger in it. There could have been some frustration in his eyes. A bit of disappointment. But I can't help but wonder if, if we had been there, if we had been able to look into God's face as he spoke to Adam and Eve 
whether we wouldn't have seen a tear. Sadness. The choices that they made, the choices that we make, the choices that offer us life and then rob us of it. And God looks at us and the thing that I believe that exercises his emotions most is not anger but sadness. If you're a parent and you see your child go the wrong way or if you just have a really good friend and you see them go the wrong way sadness it must hurt God so much to see us push him away and leap into the fire and our choices have consequences still today nothing's changed if if I act on my sinful impulses it actually rewires my brain and pushes me further from God. If you act on your sinful impulses, you end up hurting others. If we act on our sinful desires, they start to anesthetize us to God's goodness. Our actions have consequences. Grace doesn't mean that there aren't consequences, but... This is the important bit. Consequences don't mean that there isn't grace. Consequences don't mean that there isn't grace. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verse 20 that that the law was added so that uh, our awareness of sin would increase. But as sin increased, grace increased all the more. You can't outgrace God, in other words. God could have cast uh, the man and the woman out in anger and disgust. He could have turned his back on them and said, I've had enough of you. But, but instead, have a look at what he does. And the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. He takes control. Uh, and the Lord God... Even as Adam is living in his sinfulness, I believe, he made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. God clothes them. Apparently they were pretty pathetic tailors. But to be fair, they were working with with leaves. And I, I reckon most of us would be pretty pathetic if we were given those restrictions. I mean, some people look at this and go, ah, well, this is referring to the need for sacrifice and the death of an animal so that God could make the skins. You know, that that sounds nice. But the Bible doesn't actually make that link. So it's it's not something we can actually make. Uh, And Genesis, I believe, is not giving us a hint of Jesus here. It's just saying God's nice. I don't know if you, like me, were taught growing up not to use the word nice because it's not a nice word but God is just nice they didn't deserve it they they didn't deserve anything from God they deserved to get kicked out 
and to fend for themselves, and God is just nice, and he says, you guys need some help, and he gave them some clothes. God met their immediate needs. I mean, that's, that's grace, and that's what God always does. God always comes and meets us at our place of need. If we don't think we need God, what we're really saying is, God, we don't need your grace. We don't want your grace. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, God said, Jesus says, um, God sends the, the rain on the just and the unjust, the good and the evil. He gives light to the good and the evil. You read further on in in Genesis there, God gives grace to them by giving them clothes. And as we've already said, God then shows grace to them by kicking them out. Have you ever spoken to people about living forever and they look at you and they go, Oh, I wouldn't want to live forever. How horrible to live forever. And yeah, I don't want to live forever if living forever looks like this. I mean, don't get me wrong, I have a beautiful wife and I would love to live forever with her, but by the same token, would I love to live forever broken? Messed up? Hurting now and again? Pain? Anguish? Causing that to others? That sounds horrible. If living forever means an extension of life as it is now, it is a curse, not a blessing. And God looks at them and says, these, these guys have chosen to go against me. We're going to make sure that they don't live forever. We're going to kick them out from the garden so that they don't have access to the tree of life, to, to myself, in essence. God promised them from the get-go, if you eat from that, you will die, and they did, and we do. But also right from the get-go, God had a plan. Because although grace doesn't mean there aren't consequences, and although consequences don't mean that there isn't grace, we've got to remember that there is grace still for us. It didn't run out in the garden. You know, when we choose to be king of our own lives, when we choose to refuse to let God be king, we're effectively saying to him, you are dead to me. And looking at it from another way, we are spiritually dead. But even if we're dead, God's grace can reach us. It's like I, I said earlier. I'm sure God gets angry at our sin. But I'm also sure that when God looks at us, he weeps. He loves us. He loves us so much that he came for us. He came to do what we can't. He came to win that unwinnable war between evil and humanity spoken of in Genesis 
Our choices have consequences. But just because there are consequences doesn't mean that there is not grace. And the most grace is God saying, I will take the biggest consequence onto myself. I'm the only one who can bear the full weight of sin and still survive. It's mercy. It's what God not giving us what we do deserve, but it's grace because it's God taking it onto himself. See, right from the very get-go, from the very first sentence to the very worst point of humanity, God graces us. And that's just a foretaste of God's ultimate grace in adopting us as his children. See, we live in the post-fall. We live in the consequence age where death still lurks over us and we are cut off from the tree of life. And grace is God then turning around and saying, I'm going to meet your needs and I'm actually going to come. And if you are victorious, if you follow me, Revelation chapter 2 verse 7, I believe, if you follow me, to everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. It was grace that saw God cut us off from life. And there's been grace ever since that point, and it is grace that God says, now that I have dealt with sin, I want to give you what you don't deserve. I want to give you access to life. I want to give you access to me. Grace goes from the dawn of creation to the dusk of creation. Grace will always be because God is always gracious to us. The only question we've got to ask is will we accept it?